and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends, and welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm the great Brian Last, and I'm happy to be here with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down the road of wrestling history, sharing his personal tales, as well as the history of his family in the wrestling business. Without any further ado, the man of the hour, the man behind the Studcast, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Well, how you doing, Brian? It's uh, certainly great to be with you. Uh, it's always a pleasure to, to be here and sitting in this chair. I've grown accustomed to this chair. I kind of like it. Uh, I really enjoy what we're doing, and uh, I look forward to every one of these. And the next couple of these, maybe even three, I'm not sure how far this will go and how, how long it will take for us to cover it. But we're about to talk to a legendary part of wrestling, uh, especially amongst wrestlers, maybe more than fans themselves, is uh, it's the Florida Snake Pit, and uh, we're going to get into the Snake Pit today, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, it it was a it was the beginning of my career, and early on, I was able to get involved with the Snake Pit. A lot of guys didn't have had the opportunity, but I did, and and I'm glad we're here in this spot. Uh, this is a this is a beautiful place to be. I think fans are going to be intrigued by what happens in this little small building in uh, 106 North Albany in Tampa. So many people have been intrigued about the Tampa Snake Pit. It's somewhat notorious in wrestling. And what is unique about what we're about to do for this week, next week, and who knows how long, is that it's not going to be about rumor. You were there. You were one of the people in the Snake Pit, as you'll explain. But before we get to the Snake Pit, and we have a lot on that, I guess you have to talk about the man who put the Snake Pit together, who, of course, was the architect of championship wrestling from Florida, and that was Eddie Graham. Yeah, you know, you can't hardly talk about the Snake Pit. You can't have a discussion about NWA Florida uh, without Eddie Graham. I mean, he is the key figure here. Uh, before I get to breaking Eddie down here, basically, is the information about Eddie that a lot of fans probably don't know. I have to speak personally about my relationship with Eddie. Uh, I grew up around Eddie. We became friends with him and Mike, Rob and I, uh, when Mike was probably seven, eight years old. We were about the same age. We kind of grew up together uh, around Eddie and and Mike. And 
Uh, Eddie is just a phenomenal human being. I mean, he was a phenomenal human being. There was nobody like Eddie. Uh, he was bright and he was he was charismatic. Uh, he had everything going for him. He was successful. He was just everything you wanted to be as a man. He was kind of a role model for me as a young guy being a wrestler and thinking about in the future, wanting to be a promoter and wanting to take it to the next level. Uh, he was, he was, I just watched very closely what Eddie did the entire time. The first four years that I spent in the business, basically in Florida and copied a lot of things from Eddie respected Eddie beyond, beyond belief. He was, he was, everything to me he was a father figure to me basically because he was so close with my dad and they get went into business together and uh and in and his 80s and the 70s and 80s bought a lot of property in the state of florida together uh, did a lot of business together other than with just wrestling they were personal friends great friends and eddie was a personal friend to me and just a remarkable role model for me and I was lucky to be in Florida at the time. Uh, and I just want to talk briefly about where Eddie comes from. Eddie Graham, his real name is not Graham, as with a lot of wrestlers. His real last name is Gossett. And Eddie Gossett was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1930. Well, that's to me, right off the bat, the He's a Tennessee boy and born in Tennessee, just like I was, uh, just like my father was, uh, just uh, in the same state in which my grandfather built his his, his megalopolis of a territory. Uh, it, it, Tennessee, uh, to, for Eddie to have been from Tennessee, the first time I found that out, I was like amazed. I, I'd, I'd, his background, uh, he spent so much time in New York that I kind of had a feeling that he was maybe from up there in the Northeast somewhere. And I find out he's from Chattanooga is like a uh, pretty shocking to me, but Eddie was born in 1930 in, uh, in Chattanooga. He was, he was a very poor kid from a very poor family. Uh, in fact, he delivered papers and he, because he delivered papers, he, he didn't get paid from what I've heard. He got, what they paid him was they gave him a, a a free membership at the YMCA. And he took advantage of that membership at the YMCA. He was the type of kid, I guess, that that, that besides throwing those slinging those papers all the time, he was he was a, going to be an athlete. He wanted to be an athlete. Eddie had something in him that very few people have and and I may be exaggerating here, but I, it may be a good thing that they don't have. Eddie was a very, very wickedly mean person when he wanted to be. He was dangerous, just absolutely dangerous. And he went to this YMCA. They must have had some wrestlings or wrestling trainers there. Or he learned a little bit of wrestling growing up in Chattanooga as a kid because he had this opportunity to go to the YMCA. Now, in 1947, at 17 years old, he goes to Texas and, and gets somehow hooked up with Cowboy Luttrell. And Cowboy Luttrell actually trains him long before they ever get together in Florida. 
Cowboy Luttrell trains Eddie to wrestle in Texas. And uh, Eddie, Eddie becomes a huge star in not as a single wrestler, but in tags. He, he, he has these great tag partners. He goes from Texas, uh, as far as I know now, I know he makes trips. He goes, he becomes friends with, with Dory Sr. in Amarillo. He's, so he's going to work Amarillo. I got a feeling he probably worked Houston and uh, uh, years ago in that in, the, in that realm. Uh, I don't know where else he may have worked in Texas, but I know that he ends up having some of his greatest success in the 1950s uh, in New York. And it's working for probably, I don't know if it's working for Tootsmont back in those days, or maybe it's for Vince Sr. Both. So, you know, he's, he's, he's there in New York. Uh, he becomes partners with uh, Crazy Luke Graham and you know, Dr. Jerry Graham. I mean, there, there's a couple of really far out guys right there. And Eddie somehow fits into that mixture. Uh, I guess he's got that blonde hair. He started dyeing his hair at a younger age. He's got the blonde hair. He's got that look that the Grams have. And that's where he becomes Eddie Graham. I'm not sure when he started in Texas that he started out as Eddie Graham. I have a feeling he probably used another name. And I don't know that much history about him. I wish I did. His name was, I believe, Rip Rogers. There you go. He, and he actually, now I heard that he spent a lot of time with Buddy Rogers, that he loved Buddy Rogers, and he, he wanted to be somebody similar to Rogers, and he took this he took the Rogers name. Um, so he goes then to New York, and he ends up taking the Graham name because he wants to be partners with, with Luke and Jerry. I've heard stories that Eddie told me himself about his times in New York and some of those, some of the heat, I used to ask him uh, because Vince Sr. was not real strong on heat, not like, not like the Southern promotions were, uh, where you really had some hot heels that people hated. Uh, and Eddie said that they were able to accomplish that in New York. Now, you're from up in that area. You probably have a bigger and a better knowledge than I do of what went on up there. But Eddie said there were a lot of riots. They had a lot of heat, the Grams there. And uh, obviously, they won tag championships everywhere, and he won them with other people. Eddie becomes one of the great, great workers of all time and, uh, and, uh, and a very difficult guy to wrestle. Uh, I wrestled him a couple of times myself. Uh, he's 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 stiff. I mean, he's he's on top of it, and and he he'll grind you, and he will pound you, and he he's like wrestling Valentine. He's like wrestling Johnny Valentine in a way. You don't know what to expect, but you know you're going to get the hell beat out of you during the course of the match. And I assume he worked that way in New York. I know that those guys were really over. They had to be over. He told me they were really over and that they did great business up there. Uh, so at that after that period of time, he comes to Florida in 1960. Uh, I don't know whether he comes to Florida because he because he's maybe worn out a little bit. He needs a rest in New York. Or I believe it's because Cowboy is getting old and Cowboy is running Florida. He's probably suffering at this point in his attendance. Uh, he, he may not have the right talent. 
uh, once you get to be an older guy, you lose the the ability to wrestle that for in your yourself in the ring to help your own promotion. Uh, you're you're starting on a downward path here, and I think Eddie's the young hoss that comes in and 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 because uh, because he's got that cowboy electro background and because cowboy trained him because they've got a relationship already cowboy probably just puts eddie right in the spot and says eddie i want you to run this for me i want you to book for me and i want you to get the talent for me and i think that had a lot to do with probably the turnaround for florida florida was a odd territory in the fact that that there were some, there were times in the summer I heard that way back in the 30s and 40s that there would be no wrestling. They would close up because it was hot and they had there was no air conditioning and and people came in the winter and the the crowds were better in the winter and summer was not the season for them. And and in the South traditionally summer is the best time of year for your wrestling programs and your wrestling business. It's usually on fire. But Eddie becomes part owner. He not only becomes the booker, but it's at this point, I guess, in the early 60s, maybe late 50s, that that he's offered opportunity to be an owner and to be a promoter. And uh, he jumps on it, obviously. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Eddie in other ways. Eddie was a, he was a philanthropist. I mean, he, he established the Florida Boys Ranch and the Girls Villas in the state of Florida pretty much by himself. He had some help from a sheriff in the Tampa area and a few other people. Obviously, you can't do something like that without having help. But Eddie gets a lot of credit in the in the state of Florida for being the man who kind of put the Boys Ranch and the Girls Villas on the map. And he set it up exactly using the example that Cal Farley did in Amarillo, Texas. Now, Cal Farley is a figure very much mentioned in Studcast from day one. Cal Farley helped train Roy, my granddad. So there's a there's a tie-in between my family and Cal Farley. Now, here's another tie-in between Eddie and Cal Farley. I think that probably comes from the time that Eddie spends in the Amarillo area around the Funk Senior, Dory Senior, and and probably Cal's alive at that time. And Cal is probably still a very recognizable and very respected character in West Texas out there in the Amarillo area. Uh, Cal Farley becomes a huge, major figure in America. Uh, I'm not sure you know this, but they even had a stamp. In 1954, I think it was, they had a Cal Farley stamp. So, you know, you don't get to be on a stamp by not being a recognizable figure. And uh, Cal did so much for young kids and young young people that didn't have opportunity and that were homeless and, and uh, weren't wanted. And Cal took those and put them into homes and built these fabulous boys' ranches. And I don't know that he really really pushed to do girls but in eddie's case he had the girls villa too he he actually had did things for girls and for boys and he didn't just give money from himself he went another level he gave an estimated and and this is a figure i saw 
that Gordon told me one time. Gordon says Eddie has contributed at least a half a million dollars to the Florida's boys' ranches and the girls' villas. Uh, that to me was just unbelievable. And I, and I asked him, I said, are you talking about personally? And he says, Ron, he gave a lot personally. He said, but he took a percentage off of every match in every town, every night the business ran. He and part of that went to the Florida's boys ranch. I was just really bowled over by that. That just really put Eddie in my mind in a different category um, and a lot of guys make a lot of money, but they don't, they're not, they, they don't, they're not happy to give it away and they're not quick to give it away. And Eddie just saw the need. I guess he came from that real poor background, whatever possessed him to do what he did. He was a very re respected and admired person in the state of Florida. Uh, when you went places uh, with, on the road, and I flew with him a lot. Uh, he had his own plane, and he would fly me sometimes with him to places. He was, people just loved him. I mean, they they were, they just flocked to him. When you went, you land in Miami in a small airport, in a private airport, and you go downtown Miami to check into a hotel, and they would just flock to Eddie. Everybody really, really appreciated him and admired him a great deal. Uh, I heard another thing that he did that pretty, pretty was amazing to me is he gave a $10,000 contribution to the University of Florida when they established their first wrestling team. Uh, bought mats, uh, bought uh, uniforms, uh, bought the equipment that they needed, and they named their room for their wrestlers, the, their dressing area uh, at the University of Florida, the Eddie Graham room. Uh, it just is amazing what the guy did for for uh, to with people and around the country, uh, and in the state of Florida. He was truly, truly an amazing person, and he, he certainly, every, every accolade he got, he deserved. Uh, just a wonderful human being. Uh, 1976 to 1978, he becomes the president of the National Wrestling Alliance. Obviously, he has a big part in Jack Briscoe becoming world heavyweight champion because Jack's one of his guys. Jack uh, kind of got his break uh through Eddie, and then he goes on from there to to become the world champion. And there's a guy that darn sure earned the world championship. He was a phenomenal wrestler, a phenomenal athlete. So Eddie Eddie goes becomes the president of the NWA, and and in 2008 he gets elected into the WWE Hall of Fame. Part of that had to come from the fact that that not from Junior, not from uh, Vince Junior. But from Vince Sr., uh, maybe Vince Jr. did that because of his dad and his dad's appreciation for Eddie. Uh, and I'm sure they, they remained friends to the, to the time that Eddie died. And uh, So I just wanted to cover some of that. You may have some questions, and you probably have some facts that I'm not aware of, actually. Well, the Hall of Fame, unfortunately, the WWE Hall of Fame, there's no real process or thought that really goes into who gets inducted. Unfortunately for a Hall of Fame like that, 
it really comes down to what the benefits WWE. And this is right around the time they purchased the Florida catalog from Mike. Mike was still alive. And then they inducted Eddie, which was the right thing to do. And I think most wrestling Hall of Fames have Eddie in the Hall of Fame because he wasn't just a major wrestling star. Like you said, him and Dr. Jerry were a sensation in New York. They still talk about them against Rocca and Perez in the garden, in the sold-out garden. But he was also this amazing booking mind. And he mentored so many, like you, like Bill Watts, like Jerry Jarrett, who ended up running territories and also being successful bookers. Yes, yes. He had the mind. Uh, he was not only just a great booker, uh, he was a great finish guy. I mean, that's where I really saw Eddie is Eddie's talent as being in a class of his own. Uh, I'd been around wrestling a little bit. And then as, and as the longer I was in it, the more I appreciated the Eddie being a Finnish guy. He was just fabulous in that dressing room. And, you know, that's a difference. And when you're a booker, uh, you can be really good at figuring out how to put matches together and how to work angles and how to do the things that are going to ignite fans' attention and get them really involved in something. But you got to be that finish guy, too. You have to have something happen in those matches that are going to create that people go home and they go, wow, that's the last thing I thought was going to happen. And when you can do that week after week, and that's what you had to do when you ran one of these territories like this, is you had to do it week after week. You couldn't go down there and have a bad night two weeks in a row and expect to keep your business rolling. So you've got to produce every week. And he was phenomenal in the dressing room, especially with the finish part of it. Well, let's talk about that, because that is something that's been said before. And to the average fan... They probably go, oh, yeah, but I wonder if they understand what it means. So you talked a lot about different bookers here on this show. You've talked about Leo Garibaldi, Tom Ernesto, your father. What made Eddie different than them in terms of how he gave a finish and what his finishes were? I think Eddie, guys had a tendency back in dad's day before 1970 in the 50s and the 60s, maybe even more so back in Roy's day, about finishes were short. You know, there wasn't a long involved thing into a finish. It was like, well, we're here. We want to get you over tonight. Uh, we want to do this to help next week's match, you know. But then, and then when it got down to talking about the actual match, it was like, well, let's just do this. Let's do that. It was a short type of deal. That was not the case with Eddie. Eddie was just, uh, I remember the first time I wrestled in a six-man tag with Eddie, and it was a six-man elimination tag. And I think it was Eddie and myself and, and Danny Miller against Dusty Rhodes, Dick Murdoch, and Tarzan Tyler. And it was an elimination six-man tag in which when one guy got beat, he had to leave the ring. So it could be end up three guys against one, or it could end up two against two. You know, it just you kept eliminating until you eliminate one team. Uh, we eliminated all three of those guys uh, in that match without any of us losing. And I was, to me, I had never heard a finish like that. I, I spent probably at least 15 minutes after hearing the finish, 
and trying to run it back in my head. It was so long and so involved, and I had just come in. I was scared I was going to screw it up or do something wrong, and I remember it put a lot of stress on me, a lot of pressure on me. I was like, gosh, this is unreal. I mean, and from that point on, I really I saw in that first experience right there with Eddie's finishes that this guy's got it. He's, he's in a world of his own with this stuff. Uh, I pretty quickly grasped a lot of things that he was doing. And I later on in 73 go to wrestling in St. Louis and right there in Muchnick's home. Uh, and the booker at that point there is uh, Pat O'Connor and Pat, starts to realize he asked me you know ron can you handle this match for me and i would go and do it he would watch the match and he would come back and he'd go gosh man what a finish you know and he'd say next week can you handle two of them for me and eventually within probably three three months there in in st louis i i was doing the finishes i had they were all given to me you know he'd say ron figure it out you you handle it so you know I really grasped that and I loved it. And I, that was a, it helped me my entire career. It helped me with my own companies because you needed that. That was just as important as the angles you were going to work as that finishes that were happening too. And Eddie was phenomenal with them. Did you, or have you ever seen someone else ever forget a part of, or the complete finish when Eddie's giving this long intricate finish and what would happen if that did happen? Oh, gosh, many times, many times his, his finishes were very complicated. It wasn't unusual. And you could go and watch a match, and you would see when they lost it. You would see when somebody lost where they were and what, what's supposed to go. And, and it, was, it was so obvious. Uh, in Eddie's case, uh, he would just grab a guy, and he would just start flailing the hell out of him. You know, and it wouldn't be so much of work as half of that's a shoot. I mean, you messed it up here, man. You don't pay the price. I mean, he would go to pounding somebody and, the, you know, he would come up with another one right there, another finish right there. It'd be, you know, it wouldn't go like it. He just really emphasized, you know, without saying it, he made it pretty obvious to me early on that, you don't mess this guy's finishes up. You, you don't screw up that, man. You better get it right. And I had a lot of young guys that came into Florida with me that got me off to the side and said, Ron, how do you how do you keep up with all this? He, Gosh, I, I, I've already forgotten what I'm supposed to do. I said, man, you go back. You better go ask somebody. You better talk to the referee. You better find you somebody because it was an important part to Eddie. And uh, he really emphasized it to that point. And you could lose your job quick if you weren't uh, capable of, of getting that done. And we'll be talking a lot more about Eddie's booking and different instances that came out of that in the weeks ahead. Of course, we are in the middle of Florida, of Ron's career in Florida here on the Studcast. But right now, we're going to take a bit of a turn. We're not going to talk about Eddie the booker. We're not going to talk about Eddie the promoter. We're going to talk about a completely different area of the Tampa wrestling office. We're going to talk about the snake pit, Ron. I guess let's start at the beginning. What was the snake pit for those who haven't heard too much about it? Just know the name. And why was there a snake pit in Tampa? Well, I think some of that, you know, you can't, uh, you, Eddie's still in the picture here. Eddie's philosophy about 
wrestling, pro wrestling was, it's supposed to be tough. It's supposed to be real. It's supposed to look it. It's supposed to feel it. Uh, and, and he had a office down there on 106 North Albany, just uh, off of Highway 60 that runs through the center of Tampa, that runs across the state. Uh, he had that office there, and that office was used to for Eddie to convince people that wrestling was real. And that was where the snake pit developed, I believe, is Eddie wanted people... It, you know, there. My dad and and Eddie and and Bill Watts and a lot of those older guys that had such respect for the business that you you say something to them about wrestling being phony, and God knows when you talk to Eddie about that, you better you better be putting your hands over your face because he's going to bash your nose off. You know, I mean, he he just. He, so he wanted to make his wrestling office not just a place where you where they came to do business and put matches together, where they did the television. Uh, he wanted that building to be his sanctuary for the wrestling, the fact that wrestling is real. And he loved to get marks. He loved to get those people that said, well, you know, I don't really believe that that's all real. He would say, why don't you come down to the office and we'll, you know, there's a ring in there where we do uh, the television program and we'll get in the ring and, you know, you can find out for yourself. It was very nice and polite about it, but he is drawing you into the snake pit. I mean, I think it, I used to say it's the snake pit because you're going to get bit. And I mean, he, he had people bite on it, come down there, bring their gear, and everything will be fine. This is going to be a fun little deal for you. And I mean, destroy them. That's what we're going to talk about. And the, the, when we're talking about the snake pit, we're talking about guys getting in way over their heads into a situation with killers in that building that are going to see to it that you're going to leave there. You're either going to leave there with a broken leg like Hulk Hogan did, or you're going to leave there with plenty of stitches and a lot of blood uh, on your way out. You're going to be able to see where you were because you can follow the trail of blood drops uh, as you leave there. I mean, there was decimation in that building. It was there on a regular basis in the early 70s when I came there. I don't know how long they'd been doing that, but when I found out about it probably about a month, six weeks in, what was going on, and I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to learn how to shoot. That's what it, it all was about. It was about the realness of the sport and how do you really hurt people and how do you really do things uh, and utilize wrestling skills to make you a, a better. I, in my case, I really felt like it made you a better wrestler to have that background, a little bit of that background. So uh, they call it the snake pit. I'm not sure exactly why they called it the snake pit, but it was exactly that. When they opened that door to those guys and they said, oh, yeah, you're here to work out. Oh, you don't. You're, you're the guy that says that wrestling isn't, isn't real. Come on in, man. We're just going to 
we're going to show you a little bit of stuff today. Gosh almighty, those guys, should, they just had no idea what they're getting themselves into. So his, his philosophy kind of created the snake pit because he needed a place at a facility in which they could come. It was very private. It was a small little building. It set off to itself. You couldn't hear somebody scream, and there was a lot of screaming that went on in that building. There was a lot of bad, nasty things that happened in that building, and uh, those doors were closed all the time. They'd open them up to let them in, and they'd open them up to carry them out. And a lot of times, that's the way they did it. They carried them out. Well, you know, Ron, if there was a famous snake pit in England, in Wigan, Billy Riley, Billy Robinson, some of the names that people associate with that. But this snake pit in Tampa, who was actually there? I mean, you mentioned you got in there in 1970. You don't know how long it had been going, but it had been going. Who was there when you started in the snake pit? Well, the Snake Pit never had a great number of guys that, that came on a regular basis. Uh, some of the guys, Jack Briscoe came there quite a bit. Uh, Jack Briscoe, gosh, for anybody who's a wrestling fan, uh, Jack Briscoe is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Amateur, professional, I don't care what you're talking about. The guy was just absolutely fantastic. And uh, he was there fairly regularly. Uh, Bob Root was there almost all the time. Hiro Matsuda was there almost all the time. Uh, Eddie would come in always when there was a, a, a mark, when someone who's not a wrestler that wants to wrestle the wrestler, wants to find out whether it's real, Eddie always was there for that because it was his opportunity, and he came there to watch uh, – he, he always came to watch, but a lot of times before it's all over, it goes way beyond him just watching it. He 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 becomes involved in it, and uh, he just wanted to see these guys leave there hurt. He he did not want them to leave there just a little bit hurt. He wanted these guys to leave there very injured in one way or another, and. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. I, I have, I want to tell you about one instance. My first, f the first time I ever saw this. Now we would come down, it would be me and Roop and Matsuda. Occasionally there'd be a few other guys that would come, but they weren't regulars. They would come once and they'd go, gosh, this is too tough. What in the heck are y'all doing? You know, and we were like, it was, it was the real thing. I mean, we were getting hurt every day and we'd come in there after making trips to miami and getting home at three in the morning we'd be in there at 9 30 10 o'clock and we'd go for an hour and a half we're talking about a building that has no air conditioning in it it has no windows in it it has just a couple of front doors and those doors were closed uh it was the, one of the hottest places in america to be in and when they turned on those television lights in there it was just it was just ridiculously hot. Uh, so you, you had to be kind of crazy to come and want to do that. And that's what my brother used to say. He'd go, what are you doing down there, man? Why do you want to do that? And I, you know, to say, Hey man, I, I want to learn all of it. I want to learn how to do every bit of it. And so it just kind of pushed me down there. So, one of the first times that, that I'm there in which a mark comes in and Eddie 
has, I think it was Matsuda, I don't remember who he, and Eddie used to like to look around at who's there, and he would say, okay, it's your turn. Uh, in this case, he, you know, it was my, I was new to the game and hadn't been in there much. So, you know, he, I think he turned Matsuda onto this guy. And Matsuda, Hero was phenomenal. Hero was, Hero Matsuda is a, just a wrestling machine. And uh, so Hero takes him down and Hero does, he cranks him into something. I think he puts an arm bar on him. Uh, I can't even remember what his finish was. And he put some type of hold on him. The guy, the guy taps out, he screams. Uh, and, and Hero lets him go. Now Hero is a different type of person. He, He's not, he doesn't have what Eddie's got in him. He's, he's more of a laid back guy that, that doesn't really want to be a killer. You know, he just happens to be in a killer situation here in which he's supposed to be a killer. Well, this, I watched this match. It doesn't last three, four minutes. The heroes, hero hooks him up and that, you know, guy taps out. He screams a little bit. It's all over. And I'd say, well, geez, that, you know, that's, that's, I'd seen a lot of that. That's the way my dad used to do it to guys, you know, and, uh, and he, it was a good way of doing it. But then the guy, the guy uh, got up and he, and he rolled out onto the floor. And when he did, Eddie's standing kind of in the back, about toward the back of the building. And he comes to the guy and he says, uh, you know, uh, I don't think you really got the lesson that you, you need to get. And I'm like, well, what does he mean? And he just grabs the guy by his butt and the back of his neck and he shoots him back into the ring. And he says, hero, get him. Now, you know, I'm like, well, geez, I, I thought he just got him. You know, and, you know, so Hero, I mean, Hero goes, bang, he's right in there, man. And this time he's not, you can tell he's taking it up a notch and he puts another one on him. He puts another finish on him and the guy screams harder this time and louder this time. And then he, he rolls out. Uh, Hero lets him go. He rolls out on the floor. Eddie's still there, standing now by the side of the ring. And the guy gets up. And Eddie just hits him right in between the eyes, and he starts pummeling this guy. And then the the the, the, old, the old sportatorium there, you're down there by the ring. There's an entrance in the far side of the building in which wrestling fans come to to get into the wrestling for the TV, and they stand in a big lobby there. There's a door there by that lobby, and then you go out into a lobby, and then you go out to another door that lets you out of the building. Well, we're inside that first door, and Eddie starts pummeling this guy. The guy gets up, and he runs, and he gets back there where the door is, and the door's locked, and Eddie starts on him, and I'm like, I'm a young guy. I, I'd never seen anybody do this. I'd never seen anybody go off like this. And uh, and so I'm standing, I guess, next to Rupe or Hero, and, and, I, and I say, we need to do something. You know, I mean, Eddie's got him down. He's putting the boots to him. I mean, he's just, the guy's a bloody mess. And, and I said, we need to do something. And, and Hero goes, no. I go, what do you mean, no? And he goes, no. He goes, Eddie will get you. I said, what do you mean Eddie will get? He goes, he'll leave him and start on you. I was like, whoa, gee, 
wait a minute here, you know, I'm watching this. Uh, it just, that was an experience for me that's really hard to explain. Uh, I saw I saw a killer in Eddie that I had never seen before. I had never seen that side of Eddie. And Eddie was just, and I see a lot of it I, as, as, as a few years go on there, I see Eddie do some things that, that just shake me, really, really get my attention. And uh, uh, this is the first time that this happens in the snake pit. Uh, now, it's going to happen. I'm going to see a lot of this, uh, and it's Eddie. I mean, I see nobody else. Nobody else goes to throwing punches, and they don't, they don't take care of business like Eddie does. Eddie, I don't know that Eddie had the skills and all the background as a shooter, but Eddie had this mentality about him, a dangerous person. He was an absolutely dangerous person. And when he went off like this, there was no stopping him. Uh, everybody backed off and you just stayed away and you were just, I was just happy. It ain't me down there getting this done to him. It was scary. There are stories about good things that Eddie did. You talked about some of them earlier in the show here today, but then there's the snake pit. You mentioned that Eddie could be mean earlier. I've talked to several people who were in the snake pit. You, of course, being one of them, they all talk about the same kind of thing of guys getting in there, let's say with Bob Roop, getting taken apart. And then once they can't do anything, Eddie gets in there and really bloodies them up and goes to work on them. And I'm curious for you, someone who obviously has a lot of fondness for Eddie, how do you weigh the two things? How do you weigh the good side that you've gotten to see, the happiness, the guy who's willing to help you and be a friend to you and your father versus this sadistic nature that causes him not just to want to teach a lesson, but to really, really hurt someone as badly as he can? Uh, it's pretty hard. I mean, you know, it, it's pretty hard to keep your perspective and it's pretty hard to keep your, that respect for him. But at the same time, uh, I was a wrestler. I was a professional wrestler. And, 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 and you heard people that didn't believe all the time. And it didn't make any difference what you did and how you wrestled and how, how stiff you were in the ring and, and how much you hurt your opponent. Uh, it didn't make any difference. You had to protect the business. And, and that's why one of the reasons I'm there to begin with, I want to learn how to protect the business. I want to learn how to, if I need to do this, how do I do it? Now I don't want to do it the style that Eddie did it. I wanted to do it in a wrestling manner. I wanted to be able to put that sugar on them. I want to be able to put that uh, fuller leg lock on them. I want to be able to to do a wrestling hold and have them leave there going, wow, that's really real. Now, Eddie's thinking was a little different than mine, and his thinking was that I want them to leave there hurt. I want them to leave there with that, walking away with the impression that these guys are these guys are bad. And you don't want anything to do with him. And he really he he made he made that impression on him. I have one real quick story here. Uh I'm in a tag match with him. Uh and um Mark gets into the ring in the middle of the match. I can't remember who we're wrestling. It's Eddie and I and and uh, obviously I don't remember who the other guys were. But I remember a Mark jumps into the ring. Now, when someone jumps into the ring, He's yours. I mean, you know, obviously it's better if a heel goes and does it to him than a than a baby face. 
But this guy, the heels didn't get to him quick enough. And Eddie saw him there, and I, I knew, because I'd seen some uh, snake pit by this time. I'd seen a lot of stuff in the snake pit. I knew this guy's in trouble. And he gets into the ring, and he comes charging at one of those guys, and Eddie steps in front of him, and he front face locked him. And uh, he took him down on his face uh, on the mat. And I'm standing over top of Eddie, beside him, looking down at the at the guy. The guy's kicking and flailing with his feet, and Eddie reaches under his face. I can't see what he's doing. And he, I see him jerk his hand out of there, and almost instantly there's a puddle of blood that starts in where the guy's head is, and it expands out. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, almighty. And then uh, the guy turns over. And Eddie has run his fingers up in the guy's nose and actually ripped his nose off his face. Oh, my God. I was like, I was like, oh, my God. I'd never seen anything like it. His nose was hanging back on his forehead. And it was like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) So, you know, Eddie was a killer. Eddie was a killer, and and you know it's hard to it's hard to justify that type of uh, the, that thing, you know. Except you know, guys get in that position; they shouldn't have been there to begin with. They should have they should have certainly never said something to him. And uh, and I think most of those people had talked to Eddie previously, and that's why he invited them down. And they had said something to him that really upset him. And he says, you know, I'm going to have these guys be nice to them, show them nicely, and then I'm going to have my time with them. And uh, pretty pretty nasty place to be. Snake Pit was a great name for it. Confirm this if you can, because this is something I've heard. It wasn't just people who would say wrestling was fake. And by, by the way, especially back then, there really isn't a nice way someone says that. So it almost always comes across really bad because no one's going to go, hey, Ron, you know, I hear that thing you do. It's fake. They're going to go, you're a fake wrestler. You're a phony. They're going to yell it at you. They're going to be obnoxious. But what about when it was someone who just wanted to get into the business, someone who'd been watching it on TV, someone who always dreamed of being a wrestler? I had heard that Eddie gave the snake pit treatment to some of those people. Is that true? That's true. That's true. I mean, he he would turn thumbs down. I mean, uh, on somebody, uh, there were a lot of people that wanted to get involved. A lot of people who wanted to learn how to wrestle. And if they had a good attitude, you treated them like that. You treated them like they had a good attitude. If they if they said to you, hey, uh, you know, I don't know if it's real or not, but God, I'd love to be able to do that. I'd love to somebody teach me some of this and just show me some of those holes. Now, I mean, a guy like person like that's got a pretty decent attitude and you treat him accordingly. Now, if you've got a real smart ass and we're going to talk about that probably next week, there are situations here in which real smart asses show up and oh my God almighty, then they're going to leave pretty horribly. Uh, this particular situation that we just talked about where he, he just beats this guy to pieces. The guy manages to get the door opened and he gets out of the building and he, goes running down the street. He's just a bloody mess. I'm like, wow, this is unreal. Never seen anything like it. Uh, Five minutes later, the police car pulls up. 
in front of the front of the office and then we're still kind of putting our stuff on it's all over for me i've seen enough for the day i'm 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 gonna get my gear and go home and i see the cop car pull up and and then the cop gets out and he goes in the office and so i stand there and look and i look in the back seat and there's the guy that he's just beat up and he's all bloody in the back seat of the cop car so I'm like, well, what's this? How's this going to go down? And uh, so the police gun policeman goes in, and uh, Eddie comes out with him. And Eddie and the policeman says to Eddie, he says, "Is this the guy?" And Eddie looks in, bends down, looks in there at the guy. And the guy goes crazy. He sees Eddie. He thinks Eddie's going to get him again. He starts screaming like crazy. And he's trying to get out of the back of the cop car. Well, those doors lock. You can't get out. So. <laughs> the policeman, I'm wondering now, are they going to arrest Eddie? What are they going to do here? You know, this guy's obviously had the heck beat out of him. And uh, so the policeman opens the car door and he reaches in and he grabs the guy and he jerks him out. And he says, uh, he goes, he goes, is that the guy that beat you up? He points to Eddie and the guy goes, yes, yes, that's him. And he says, get your ass out of here. He goes, you should have known better than come down here, man. He goes, you look a lot better than most of the people that leave here. You know, it's like you need to be happy you're not beat worse than what you are. So policemen, everybody knew what was going on behind those doors at 106 North Albany. It was not the place to be. Well, unlike one of the victims of the snake pit, we will be escaping for just one moment right here to give you an update on the next Super Studcast, which is coming at you on April 15th, Super Studcast number four with Robert Fuller. In Super Studcast number four, which is available Sunday, April 15th, the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller has decided to ride in a totally new direction. For the first time ever, Ron will have a guest live for the entire two hours. This guest is a famous wrestler, booker, and promoter of wrestling talent. He's discovered and handled an assembly of wrestlers that few others in the sport can claim. The following unbelievable list is some of the Hall of Fame talent he mentored while at WCW and WWE. While at WCW in the 1990s, Steve Austin would go on to be Stone Cold, Cactus Jack of Mick Foley and Mankind fame, Scary Sid Vicious, Ravishing Rick Rude, Arn Anderson of the Four Horsemen, and Booker T of Harlem Heat. He would later make his mark in WWE with their recent Hall of Fame inductee, Jeff Jarrett. He's recognized worldwide as Colonel Rob Parker for WCW and Tennessee Lee for WWE. He's also a member of the oldest and largest wrestling family on the planet. I'm sure that everyone is aware by now that Super Studcast number four will feature the stud's hugely successful brother, Robert Fuller Welch. This famous brother tag team has held just about every tag team championship in the southern USA and most of the individual championships recognized by the NWA, National Wrestling Alliance. They've also created and developed some of the most successful NWA territories like Southeastern Championship Wrestling's Southern Division and the hugely popular Continental Championship Wrestling. Wrestling success has followed their family since 1920 and they're still making their mark today don't miss this opportunity to hear not one but two of the greatest storytellers in wrestling history there it is what everyone's been talking about super stud cast number four coming at you april 15th with robert fuller of course go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only 
$2.99 a month for all the bonus content you get by being a patron of this show. We'll tell you a little bit more about it later in the show. Of course, Ron, your brother Robert was not in Florida. He wanted nothing to do with the snake pit, but you are there. And two of the names you mentioned were Bob Roop and Jack Briscoe, both guys with legitimate backgrounds. And I'm curious, who did Eddie favor at that point in time? Uh, I think, you know, Eddie liked Bob Roop because Bob had a little bit of that same same uh, dangerous attitude that Eddie has. Uh, Jack had none of that. Jack was a, just a strictly great wrestler. And, uh, you know, and, and the fact you brought him up here, I, I want to give you an example of another, probably the nicest incident I ever saw in the snake pit in my time there uh, was, was Eddie, had, they had written a bad article in the Tampa paper and Eddie was really, I mean, and it was about wrestling and, you know, they, they just come out and said, well, this ain't real and that ain't real and the sleeper hole don't work and a whole bunch of things. So Eddie went to the newspaper and he said, I wanted you to come down to 106 North Albany and bring your reporter, bring your camera people, bring whoever you want to, and I want you to give me an opportunity to introduce you some harassers that will change your mind. And uh, so they came, and and I was in there. I was part of part of this group that, that got to show these guys some moves. And what they did is he... And and it happened to be that the main reporter who wrote the story had a little amateur background, and he knew some wrestling, he knew setouts, and he knew switches, and he knew he knew some amateur stuff, but he didn't know any professional stuff. And they've got the camera guy there. They they send down eight or ten people from the newspaper, and they're all sitting on the first row. There's nobody in the building but. Roop and Matsuda and Jack Briscoe and Eddie, myself, uh, maybe a couple of other guys I can't remember. But, you know, it's a small group. There's 10, 12 people in there. Uh, Don Curtis is there. Okay. Uh, so we're, so Eddie gets things started and he gets the reporter up in the ring and he says, you know, Jack, he goes, uh, this guy used to wrestle and, you know, the guy says, yeah, I used to wrestle in high school, wherever it was. And uh, so Jack gets in there and, and Eddie says, you know, um, what do you know? What do you, what kind of moves do you know? And uh, so the guy says, well, I know an Oklahoma ride, you know, uh, and I, I'm thinking if I got an Oklahoma ride that I can pretty well, you know, hang on to a guy and keep him there and the whole deal. And so, so Jack gets down on his hands and knees. Now an Oklahoma ride is a pretty simple deal. Uh, and, and wrestling holes are hard to explain, uh, you know, um, visually you can understand it when you see it, but you're on your hands and knees. The guy takes his right leg and he wraps it. He puts his leg between Jack's legs. Jack's on his hands and knees. He sticks his leg in there and he gets what's called a grapevine. He hooks his leg to his other leg. He straddles across Jack's body. He gets his left arm and around his shoulder. And that's called an Oklahoma ride. Uh, once you get a guy in that position, you can control him, but you can't hurt him. And uh, it's basically the only wrestling that the guy really knew. So, Jack, this was really great. I, I was really impressed by this. And Jack says, and now Jack's got the guy on his back, and he's talking to him, and he says, uh, he goes, he he he's, he pushes his body up, his hands and his feet, so that he is like a 
like a uh, spider, let's say, and this guy is strapped across his back, across the spider's back. He's holding on to one leg and one arm. And Jack says, uh, do you have me? And the guy says, yes. He goes, yes, I've got you. I've got you in the, in Oklahoma ride. And Jack takes, now he's got, he has no problem. He just takes one hand up and he makes an X on the mat. Uh, and he says to the guy, now the guy's looking at the X and that, and he goes, uh, he goes, do you see that X right there? And the guy goes, yes. And he goes, all right. He goes, that's where your face is going. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he just drops his body in a, in a fashion I'd never seen. He, he just, he basically turned his body upside down and he peeled that guy off. Like you'd peel a banana peel off of a banana. It, and the guy's face smashed into the mat face first. And uh, Jack comes right out standing on his feet on top and the guy's laying there. About knocked him unconscious. The guy was like, oh, my God. He finally got up. He's shaking his head. He's like, oh, my gosh, almighty. Jeez. You know, so the guy was like, you know, and he had been making his remarks that, you know, wasn't real and none of this works and all that stuff. So so the guy gets his faculties about him again and takes him four or five minutes. And, uh, you know, Eddie, very nice. Hey, well, you know, you didn't do so good with that hold. Uh, you know, maybe you'd like to find out about something else. You know, Eddie's been very, very nice and polite. And the guy finally gets his, his faculties back, and he goes, uh, you know, well, that sleeper hold. He goes, you know, I see the they do the sleeper all the time, and there's, you know, that ain't, there ain't any way that can work. And uh, so, so Don Curtis is there. Now, Don Curtis is fabulous with the sleeper. And Donna Curtis says, well, you know, I'd like to come in there, Eddie, if I could. I, I'd like to show the gentleman the sleeper. And so... Eddie says, yeah, come on in, Don. So Don slides in the ring. He's got no tights on or anything. He's just dressed. And uh, and he he walks over to the guy. Now, the guy's taking pictures. The camera guy takes the picture of him being scraped off and his face smashed into the mat. And he takes the pictures of him after he's standing there. And he can tell he's, got, he's about half knocked out. And uh, so the guy starts taking pictures. Uh, Don Curtis goes behind the guy. And he grabs the reporter and he puts him in the sleeper position and he's talking to him very plain, just very softly. You know, Don Curtis had a great demeanor about him anyway. And he would say, uh, you know, first you, you, you cut off the blood to the carotid artery and he's explaining to him how it works. And the guy's asleep. <laughs> he's still talking to him, and he's, he's, he's and the guy's just falling limp. His arms are hanging down, and and Don is still holding him, you know, like he's like he's still conscious, but he's holding him in the same position. He's still got the sleeper on him, and I'm like, I'm laughing like hell, like the guy's already out, and the cameraman's laughing too. The cameraman's going. You know, and the cameraman snapping his pictures, picture after picture after picture, and finally Don just lays him down on his back, and uh, and then sits him up and smacks him on the back of his neck, and the the guy kind of comes out of it, and uh, the first thing he says is he he looks up and he sees the photographer. The photographer never stopped taking pictures, and uh, he looks up and he sees the photographer, and he. And he smiles at the photographer and he goes, I right, see, I told you that it didn't work. 
<laughs> and the photographer goes, you've been out for three minutes. <laughs> so it was great. I mean, you know, they went away. Those guys were so impressed. They left that building the next day. I couldn't wait to get the newspaper. I get the paper and oh my gosh, same guy that just two days earlier or a week earlier and said it's all a bunch of phony stuff uh, is writes the most fabulous article. He says, don't go down to 106 North Albany. <laughs> he goes, he goes, please. He says, I'll tell you, those guys are for real, son. He goes, he goes they'll hurt you there. <laughs> so it was fabulous. I mean, it was a great way of taking care of that. Uh, Jack was so sweet and nice to the guy. Don Curtis is so nice to the guy. Eddie's so nice to the guy. Uh, and it just, that's the way to take care of those type of situations. You don't leave them bleeding and running out of there or carrying them out of there. Uh, but uh, that really impressed me. That was one of the best, one of the best things I saw happen at the snake pit, other than what we'll talk about next week, the sugar hole. Uh, the, the discovery of one of the greatest holes I've ever seen, one of the greatest holes in all of wrestling. We will return to North Albany and the Snake Pit next week, but before we wrap things up this week, Ron, we have a few questions from the listeners of the Studcast, and this first one is from Robert Carl Harper in Belfast, Ireland. Who was the toughest Japanese wrestler that you ever wrestled? Well, geez, man, that's a that's a good one. I've wrestled a lot of Japanese wrestlers. Uh, having been to Japan, you wrestle them pretty much every night. Uh, and uh, I've wrestled Baba, uh, who is taller than I am, uh, uh, seven foot. Uh, I've wrestled uh, uh, Fuji, uh, the old time Fuji, and the younger Fuji. I've wrestled Saito. Uh, I've wrestled all kinds of uh, Chadi and uh, and just uh, Oki, Oki Shikina, uh, just a number of Japanese. And oddly enough, we talked about one of them, this guy who, in my opinion, is the best Japanese, the toughest Japanese wrestler maybe that ever lived is uh, Hiro Matsuda. Hiro Matsuda is was remarkably good. I just I had no idea how good he was. Uh, he was good enough that when he came to America, he was probably the most difficult opponent that Danny Hodge had had. Period uh, anywhere in the world. And I watched those guys wrestle each other probably at least five times. Some of the greatest wrestling matches I have ever seen in my life was Hiro Matsuda and Danny Hodge. And Matsuda was just fantastic. He did not, he was not like Eddie with that killer attitude, but he just had so much wrestling knowledge and so much wrestling ability. And I just, I just loved Hiro Matsuda. I, I loved him being a part of me being able to shoot with him in the snake pit. Just, it was a great experience for me. And uh, I really, really got an appreciation for Hiro. And maybe that's why my answer here is Hiro Matsuda. I gained an appreciation for him far beyond any other Japanese wrestler I ever wrestled because I shot with him. 
uh, had I not shot with him, maybe I wouldn't have known his ability, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had the uh, appreciation and respect for him that I do have. But undoubtedly, in my mind, the toughest Japanese wrestler I ever wrestled was Hiro Matsuda. I don't have your career records in front of me, Ron. Did you get to work much with Jumbo Saruta when you toured with All Japan in 1983? And I worked with yes, I worked with Saruta with Jumbo, and uh, he's great. He's absolutely great. A lot of those Japanese guys are very good, and they have shooting backgrounds. Uh, and a lot of that came from different guys, Saito, because I go there in the 80s. Uh, in 83 to Japan, and Saito had wrestled for me in in Continental and Southeastern Wrestling in Pensacola in 82. Uh, he had been there with us in 82, couldn't speak any English, uh, was shooting with a lot of our guys, uh, was learning the art of the business, and went back there and trained those Japanese that I'm going to go there a year later and wrestle against. Uh, some of those guys were trained some by Saito. Uh, Saito, I think, was maybe better, Saru better than Saruta. Uh, Saito was really, really he was scary good in some ways. He had one of the most unique single-leg takedowns I have ever seen. And uh, when you watched him put it on somebody, you're, my, my, my first thought was, that hurt, the, that hurt the guy big time. It hurt him big time. I remember that Bill Dundee came to wrestle for me in 82, that, in the summer of 82. And Saito was in that crew. And Bill was going to be there for two weeks. And he... After the first night, he went out and watched the matches because he wanted to see all the wrestlers that were there. And, uh, you know, that's what you do when you go to a different territory and you're not just visiting kind of, is you want to see everybody and you want to see who's good and who's not. And he came back to me uh, after, after the first match he saw with Saito. And he said, Ron, he goes, I want you to do me one favor. And I said, what's that, Bill? And he says, I want you not to book me with that Japanese for, <laughs> while I'm here. He said, don't put me in the ring with him, please, while I'm here. And uh, so, you know, he shouldn't have told me that. I'm not, so <laughs> in his last day there, I booked him on TV. And uh, he came in, he says, who I got? He says, I'm on TV today. Yeah, yeah, you are, Bill. Uh, who I got? I said, you got Saito. Oh, Ron, no. <laughs> and, uh, and Saito put that single leg on him that I was talking about. I just, I loved it. But, uh, you know, I, I, those, some of those guys were really great. But, but I do believe, and, and Hero actually gave Danny Hodge, uh, they would half shoot in those matches that they had. And you could see when, when, when uh, Matsuda was going after him. And you could see when it turned from, from work to shoot, and sometimes it would turn back to work again. Uh, but uh, there was a great, great deal of respect there from Danny. Danny loved Hero. And Danny used to tell me of that a lot. I would say, who did you really admire most of, of a lot of guys you work with? And uh, Hero's name came up on several occasions. And uh, and I have the same respect for Hiro Matsuda. When you go to Japan in 83, of course, you're aligned with the NWA affiliate, which is All Japan Pro Wrestling. Antonio Inoki had New Japan Pro Wrestling. You never worked there. But did you ever run into Inoki in America? Did you ever come across him at all? No. 
I never got to meet Anoki. I would have liked to have met Anoki. Uh, Anoki looked like a great rest, wrestling talent. Uh, obviously, he had a lot of shooting background as well. Uh, he might have been the best of all of them. And like I said, I can't really judge. You know, you, you when you shoot with somebody, it's a lot different when you're working with somebody. And you have a different... You you would likely come out of there with a different attitude about uh, what they're all about after doing that. But uh, uh, Hero was really great. Uh, uh, obviously, Anoki was a he was a monster talent, and uh, he goes on to have the match with uh, Ali. And I mean, he, you know, he he they, he does some remarkable things in his career. Did you guys do the closed circuit in Southeastern in '76 when they did the Ali Anoki match? Because they did it in so many other places, like Atlanta like um, Chicago, or obviously New York. Did you do it? No. No, we did not. Were you offered it? Did, did the New York no, office call nobody, you up? No, nobody offered it to us. And, uh, you know, I like to call Continental uh, the lost territory. Uh, we kind of uh, didn't, didn't burn a real bright light there. We did not shine a bright light. My dad used to say to me when I was a young promoter, he would say, Kid, don't shine too bright a light. And I would say, what do you mean by that, Dad? And he said, they'll leave you alone if they don't know about you. And, uh, you know, when you own a business and a territory, uh, that's probably not bad advice because you don't want people trying to come in there on top of you. You don't want to have problems. You don't want to have competition. There's a, all of that is eliminated by not shining that bright light. And I think in a lot of cases and a lot of circumstances, that's what we did with Continental. We had some tremendous talent in there and tremendous stuff going on, as good probably as anybody's program in America. And uh, a lot of people didn't know about it. They don't know well, who, where is Continental Rising? Uh, what, who's, who's there? You know, so, yeah. Uh, it's kind of strange to keep your business that way, but I kind of listened to my dad in that respect. And, uh, and except for a situation in Knoxville that we're going to talk about later in 79, I'm not going to encounter any problems uh, because of shining that bright light. I know we're running long here this week, but one final question from the listeners, Ron. This one's from Steve Weber in Silver Springs, Maryland. Were there many wrestlers who had problems working with a guy who was six foot nine? but moved and worked like someone much smaller. Yeah, I assume he's talking about me. <laughs> I, hope, <laughs> I think so. I hope he's talking about me, you know. Uh, but uh, I think, uh, yeah, you know, there there are problems with that and somewhat. I mean, uh, your reputation precedes you. Uh, as you as you stay in wrestling for a while and and what we're talking about today that snake pit reputation precedes you as well precedes you and uh you know people people know uh wrestlers talk they talk to each other and you know it's a telephone tele telegram or tell a wrestler you know i mean you tell a wrestler something they're gonna tell everybody else so you know they know your background and they know they watched me. I, when I was growing up, my dad always tried to tell me when I was trying to learn to wrestle, he said, don't ever think because you're really tall and, and going to be big that there's things that you shouldn't do. He says, you need to be able to do everything anybody else can do, no matter how big you are. 
And I really listened to that. And I, and I tried to, in my career, be able to do that. I, I, I like to do the flying head scissors and I like to do the drop kicks. And I, I like to do the, the type of things that just about everybody else did. And, and it's, it's pretty uncommon. Uh, you and I, I know that you in your 605 recently, you did Don Leo Jonathan. You had yeah. Don Leo Jonathan on there. And Don Leo, to me, is one of the great big men of all times. Uh, could do it all. And uh, I watched a little bit of his stuff uh, when I was a kid, before I started wrestling. And anytime I could see any John Leo Jonathan stuff, I wanted to watch it because he 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 did just exactly like my dad advised me to do, and uh, I never tried to slow myself down. I never tried to uh, to work like a small guy, but I did not work like a big guy either. I did not want to be one of those guys that Vince Senior used to have all the time in New York up there. That's the big three hundred pounder plus that. Uh, they can't move. I wanted to be up and down and doing things that anybody else could do and sometimes do them faster than even small guys could do. And I thought that that made me a better talent. That is a reputation that the WWWF had and even the WWF where they had a bunch of big guys who really didn't have a lot of action. A lot of the smart fans termed rest holds. What was your impression when you went up there, when you worked in Madison Square Garden, or whenever you got to see their TV? Is was that your impression as well? Yes, yes. Uh, I know that you know the they, they had the but but they had really big guys, Gorilla Monsoon, and uh, you know I mean uh, Bruno's a big dude. Uh, There's a lot of big guys. They really liked those those you know Slaughter. Uh, uh, just it just goes on and on. The list goes on and on. You know and. Uh, and a lot of those big guys never really learned to wrestle and they never learned to shoot for sure. And they didn't learn a whole lot of wrestling and they, they used their size, uh, in a manner in which I, I did not want to go there. I just didn't want to be that type of wrestler. Uh, and I think I did a pretty decent job throughout my entire career, by being able to work with just about any size guy, I could I could have a great match with a big guy. I could have a great match with a small guy, uh, and uh, I think that's what it's all about is is going out there every night. Are you going to have a great match almost every night? And that's 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 probably what you leave as a legacy is the guy that can go out and work with anybody and and produce it every night. And with that. Another stud cast is in the books. Of course, I want to remind everyone once again, Super Studcast number four, April 15th with Robert Fuller. Of course, you can go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only $2.99 a month to access the Super Studcast as well as the rest of the Robert Fuller story, which will debut on April 29th. Of course, Andre the Giant, Ron Wright, Caribbean Chaos, all the Super Studcasts are available for only $2.99 a month, and we have a lot more coming at you in the weeks and months ahead. Of course, we'd like to remind everyone you can like the Tennessee Stud on Facebook. Go to Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. 
You could follow Ron on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You could follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. And you can hear me each and every week on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Hey, Brian. Brian, I want to interrupt you for just a second. Okay. I want to pick me a winner here today, okay? <laughs> That's <laughs> so my fault. I, I know yes. you're about to close this out here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I want to make sure today we're going to get this winner picked. And uh, I'm going to take that guy out of Ireland with the, 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 the I don't remember his name, but uh, the, the toughest Japanese wrestler. Uh, I answered it with hero. But uh, I want to be able to make sure I get a, get a winner in here today. You have a winner, and it's, of course, Robert Carl Harper from Belfast, Ireland. I'm very happy. It's going to Ireland that you're paying for the shipping and not me. But we'll have more about that in the weeks ahead. Once again, we want to tell everyone next week on the Studcast, tell somebody, call somebody, because we're going to get into the sugar hold, as well as, quite frankly, some very scary moments in the snake pit. But until then, for the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.